Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. If you're reading from the Bibles at the back of the church, this passage begins on page 764. John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, Grace. With your parents' permission, anyone up through third grade is welcome to be dismissed to junior worship. And for the rest of us, let's prepare our hearts for God's word. Let's take a moment and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock our Redeemer. Amen. Well, friends, welcome again. If you don't know me, I'm Pastor Gordon, and we're working through the Gospel of John together. And so we come now to John chapter 15, and we're looking at verses 12 through 17. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you open it and follow along as we'll be tracking through this passage today. Friends, the Bible, again and again, from Genesis to Revelation, is deeply concerned with friendship, what it means to be a friend of God, and how it is that in God's good design, God's friendship creates and defines human friendship. The Bible tells us, in fact, that we were meant for community with God, but that we rebelled against him becoming enemies of him and each other. But God graciously overcomes our rebellion by his love in the cross, transforming us into friends. So Christian friendship is what should define our community, and it should drive our mission. Christian friendship is what makes us more like God and shows the gospel to others. So this message today, as we look at this passage, is important because unless and until you understand what it means that God has befriended you in Christ through his cross, you will not find true, lasting, satisfying, or transforming friendship. I might go on to say that without friendship, we are unlikely to find our way to the celestial kingdom. So the goal of this passage, if you're looking in your scriptures, can be found in both verse 12 and verse 17. In verse 12, you'll see, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
And then if you look down at verse 17, you'll see, these things I command you so that you will love one another. So friendship, which I'm defining as love for one another, is for our good and God's glory. Friendship is the way that we experience God's love and that we grow in his likeness and advance his gospel. So friendship, first with Christ and then with each other, is how God brings us to himself. It's how God transforms us into his image. It's how God reveals his mind to us and his counsel. It's how he secures us in his purpose and in his providence. It's how he directs us and equips us for lives of faithful friendship. Friendship is for our good and the good of others because friendship is a picture of God's faithful love. So that said, the main idea of this text, if you hadn't figured it out yet, is... The cross makes us friends of God and one another. The cross makes us friends of God and one another. Or another way to think about it would be we need friendship to know God. We need friendship to become like God. We need friendship to show God to others. So in order to explain this main idea, we first need to understand both how it is and what it means that God has befriended us in Christ. Because Christian friendship, the love that we have for one another, and that is the goal of this passage, it ought to characterize the life and the heart of every Christian in the church. Christian friendship is based on, and it's conditioned on, what I'll call divine friendship. God's friendship with us. You cannot be or find a true friend until you have been made a friend of God. You cannot be, you cannot find a true friend until you have been made a friend of God. So, we're going to break this whole thing into two different parts. The first part is divine friendship is the root of Christian friendship. So, divine friendship is the root of Christian friendship. And we're going to draw out four marks from this passage that characterize divine friendship. The first of them is that divine friendship begins at the cross. Divine friendship begins at the cross. Friendship has to begin somewhere. Somebody has to take the first step. And in Scripture, divine friendship always begins with the cross, and God always and only takes the initiative. So look at verse 13. When Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, he is referring specifically to himself. Now, while it's true, all Christian friendship will be patterned on this, the greatest of all kinds, yet he is the someone. He is the one who laid down his life in the ultimate sense. And his disciples, those he went to the cross to save, are his friends. And we know this because Jesus says that there is no greater love than this, this being the cross. And when he describes it as there's no greater love than it, we recognize that the cross is an unrepeatable and ultimate display of true and unparalleled friendship. It is the greatest act of love. And no matter how sweet, no matter how wonderful, no matter how even sacrificial our friendships for one another may be, they will pale 
in comparison to the power and the love of Christ's friendship for us in his cross. Friends, even a soldier who dies for his family and who lays down his life for his country does not and cannot secure their spiritual transformation. He can't, he can't secure their spiritual welfare, even by the cost of his life. He can't even be sure of securing their immediate future earthly good, much less their spiritual well-being. No, the cross is the ultimate act of divine friendship because the cross is God's means to overcome our sinful and bitter rebellion, appease his holy justice, and so transform us from enemies into friends. Because the irony, and maybe some of you have noticed this, there's an irony in verse 13. That apart from Jesus' work on the cross, every one of us remains an enemy of God not a friend. In fact, some of us may even have thought of Romans 5 verse 10, which reads, wasn't it, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And doesn't Paul say in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, we all once were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So every one of us in this room, whether we knew it or not, whether we meant it or not, began and lived some part of our lives as an enemy of God. But Jesus went to the cross while we, who he calls his friends, were still his enemies. And right there, in the way John uses that little turn of phrase, you can see several truths. The first of which is, divine friendship is a sovereign work of grace. Divine friendship is a work of sovereign grace. It's utterly unmerited, and it's utterly unprompted on our part. It means what Jesus says in verse 16. So look at verse 16. He points to the disciples and says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. It means that God set his favor on us as friends before we ever were friends, before we were ever born. And he sought us out individually and collectively by the work of his cross, drawing us to himself by his spirit. It means that the cross is God's sovereign and gracious means of befriending sinners. Paul says in Colossians 2, 13 through 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, and he's referring to Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. How? When? Nailing it to the cross. So was I an enemy or was I a friend? Both. You, you, you were an enemy, but God made you his friend, and he had set his determination on that before you were ever born. So divine friendship is a work of sovereign grace. But secondly, divine friendship is unfailing. Divine friendship is unfailing. Paul says in Romans 8, 32 and following, and this is famous, he who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He says, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? And he answers, nothing. Nothing in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God. So friends, the work of the cross is gracious. And the work of the cross is permanent. This also means, thirdly, divine friendship is essential to salvation. It's gracious, it's permanent, and it's essential. God has no friends who have not been purchased and changed by the work of his cross. Do you see that? A man or a woman who has not been humbled to repentance who has not entrusted themselves, body and soul, to the person, word, and work of Jesus Christ, who does not live out of the outpouring of God's own love, cannot call themselves a friend of God. Because we cannot encounter God's friendship and remain as we are. Which brings us to our second big mark of part one, which is divine friendship changes our heart and our behavior. Divine friendship begins at the cross, but it changes our heart and our behavior. Look at verse 14. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now notice this obedience, as we've just pointed out, is not what makes them friends. It's what characterizes them as friends. Our obedience is a characterizing result it's a demonstrable effect of the cross's work in our heart and life. We pointed this out before in some of our sermons in John, so you may remember this. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and following, we said, the cross not only ransoms us from futile ways, but for holy conduct. In 1 Peter 1, 18, he says, you were ransomed from the futile ways. How? not with perishable things, but with the blood of Jesus Christ. And for what? Well, down in verse 22, he'll say, for a new life of sincere brotherly love. Well, now you're seeing the connection. The cross frees us from our former ways and changes us and makes us friends. Therefore, this means that our relationship to Christ through the cross is not strictly reciprocal. So just imagine here, these friends, these apostles, you and I, of Jesus, cannot turn around and say Jesus will be their friend if he does what they say, right? That would be a reciprocal friendship, where Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I say, and we could say he is our friend if he does what we say. Well, this is not a reciprocal relationship. God is not our equal. Rather, divine friendship, which is brought about and applied through the cross of Jesus Christ, changes us by beholding and experiencing the amazing love of God for us. It makes us able to love others. By beholding and benefiting from Christ's humility, we are made ready to serve others. By considering the endurance of Christ, we are made ready to persevere. The goal of divine friendship is gospel transformation. And to that end, 
the cross not only begins, but also progressively brings about a change in our life. And the first step to changing our life is changing our mind. Therefore, the third mark of divine friendship is divine friendship opens God's word to us. Look at verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So, we just pointed out that friendship with God does not mean equality with God. As we said, divine friendship is not strictly reciprocal. So what does it mean to call someone a friend of God? Well, remember that Moses and Abraham, they were both called friends of God. Why were they called friends of God? They were called that because they enjoyed special access to God's presence. They were friends because God spoke with them, because he showed his counsel to them. And so it is here. Jesus says that a servant does not know his master's business. He's just told to do. But God is more than our master. He is our father. And in Jesus, he has revealed to us the mystery of his will and his purpose. This means that part of God's work of friendship in our lives is opening our hearts to his word. Paul famously says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.7, his adopted son, he says, think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And in here in John, Jesus tells the disciples that the Holy Spirit, in chapter 14, verse 26, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Learning and understanding God's word is essential to the transformation of our mind and consequently our behavior and our character. So the word of Christ, the work of God, sorry, the work of God begins with the cross of Christ, and it's one that he will carry on by his spirit by renewing our minds. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 16, he says, and we impart this, meaning the gospel, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So what does it mean to be a friend of God? It means to have received the mind of Christ, to interpret the spiritual truths that only can be spiritually discerned. It's having God disclose his counsels to you in and through Jesus Christ. He has made known to you his will. Therefore, fourth, divine friendship is fruitful. Divine friendship is fruitful. It is the beginning of Christian friendship. Again, let's recall verses 12 and 17, the main idea, the main point of this passage. Jesus has performed an amazing work in our lives to bring us to God. But this work of the cross, which befriends us and transforms us by renewing our mind in the truth of his word, is not ultimately or even exclusively for us alone. Instead, you can see in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And in verse 17, he reiterates, these things I command you. Why? So that you will love one another. Christian friendship 
is the fruit of divine friendship. God makes you his friend so that you can go and be a Christian friend. This is the chief form of fruit that Jesus means then in verse 16. There's lots of fruits he could be talking about, but I think the chief one is, he says, I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And the, word that you can't, the thing you can't see here is that the word for appointed here is the same verb, though in a different tense, as the verb to lay down in verse 13. So in verse 13, Jesus lays down his life. Here, he appoints them or he lays them down. It means that Jesus is locating us. He's laying us down, if you will, in just the right place and in just the right way so as to spread the effects and fruit of his gospel to others. He's putting you specifically where you are right now in your life so as to be a Christian friend to others so that you can spread his gospel to those that are around you. Friendship is for our good, but it is ultimately for the good of others. It's a living picture of the gospel of God's faithful love for his church. Now in verse 12, Jesus specifically says that we should pattern our love, we should pattern our friendship on his love. He says, love one another as I have loved you. So with our remaining time, I want to work out some implications of how God's divine friendship defines and guides our Christian friendship. So this is sort of part two. Part one, divine friendship. Part two, Christian friendship is the flower of divine friendship. Or you could think of, you know, if divine friendship is the sun, Christian friendship is the moon. It reflects the light of the sun. Now, in these points, I'm going to be using the word us, and I mean it collectively. The cost, the direction, the transformation of Christian friendship should affect everyone involved, us and others. So when I say Christian friendship will cost us, I, I mean all of us. <laughs> so first, Christian friendship will cost us. If Christian friendship is to be patterned on the ideal of divine friendship, as we see in verse 13, then Christian friendship will almost certainly be costly. In Philippians 2, 1 through 8, Paul is writing to the church and he's enjoining them to take on the mind of Christ. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The picture that we have in Philippians and the picture that we have in John is that Jesus willingly embraced the indignity of humanity. He willingly embraced the shame of our sin. Why? 
to deliver us from God's wrath, to work for our good. Such humility, such a preference for others should characterize our relationships. We should be willing to sacrifice time. We should be willing to sacrifice money. We should be willing to sacrifice comfort, dignity, energy, to see those around us find Christ and grow in godliness. Christian friendship will require, on, uh, will require us to rely on God's grace and so to step into the messiness, the inconvenience, and the hurt of other people. And friendship is just messy. You're inevitably going to come into contact with the dirt of relationship. But this is what Christ did for you. Did he look at you and consider all of your sin as some sort of obstacle to his friendship? No, he overcame it and he brought you to him. How, how many of us, having come to Christ, have now gotten all of our problems sorted out? Oh, no, I do too. Not a one. But does Christ cast off our friendship because we have not yet been fully perfected? Does he cease to bear with us and to carry us and to compassionately support us? Well, how much then also ought we to bear with the difficulties and indignities and painfulnesses and frustrations of others? Friends, it pleases God when we lay down our lives for one another. When for the love that we bear God, we reach out in love to one another. True Christian friendship, if it resembles God's work in your heart, will cost you. A true friend will be able to show you your fault and lead you to repentance. Sweet are the kisses of an enemy. The words of a friend are true. This may cost you your pride. And it might cost him or her courage. A true friend will help you in ways that you may not be able to repay. And a true friend will not expect you to return the favor. Jesus says, lend your cloak and don't expect it back. God may call you to be that sort of friend. If you have wealth, then maybe to sacrifice wealth. If you have skill, maybe to use your skill. If you have time, then maybe time for someone else. And in all of it, he will ask you to trust him for your reward. He will ask you to rely on divine friendship as the root of your Christian friendship. The truth is that such sacrifices, when they are given in the context of real and genuine friendship, don't actually feel as costly as they might otherwise be measured. And that's because Christian friendship flows from and it reflects the graciousness of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.32, Paul commands us, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. How are you going to be tender-hearted towards your friend? How are you going to forgive them? By first looking on, remembering that God in Christ forgave you. Look to the gospel in order to be a Christian friend. Friends, if friendship doesn't cost you anything, 
you may ask if it truly resembles Christ's love. Because true Christian friendship should regularly and ultimately point us to Christ. So our second aspect of Christian friendship is that Christian friendship should point us to Christ. True friendship does not exist for its own sake. Now, worldly friendship may. And C.S. Lewis talks about this extensively in The Four Loves. He argues that true friendship consists of more than a shared activity. He says, for us, maybe a common religion, common studies, common profession, even a common recreation. All who share it will be our companions. But one, two, or three who share something more will be our friends. In this kind of love, as Emerson said, do you love me means, do you see the same truth? He goes on. Friendship must be about something. Even if it were only enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice, those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. I've often seen that last sentence just sort of airlifted out of the quote, and it bugs me, because the whole point of it was you need to have something more. Not just something. You need something more. Every friend has something in common. Yes, no, you need something outside of yourself. Christian friendship is oriented toward knowing and following Christ. Jesus says in verse 14, you, plural, all y'all, are my friends if you, plural, all y'all, do what I command you. And verse 15, he says, all that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you, plural, you. Now just as Christ opens our heart to his word and helps us to grow in a knowledge and a love of God, so should our friends. 2 Peter 3, 17 through 18, he commands the church, he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, just receive this and stay here. He, he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 7, Paul says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, just keep doing it? No. That you do so more and more, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So, friends, and I mean that, friends, memorize Scripture together. Study it together. Worship Christ together. Sing songs together. Pray together. If our friendships consist only of worldly interests, then what distinguishes our love from theirs? Doesn't Jesus say the tax collectors love one another? They treat the people that are nice to them properly. What distinguishes us? Our needs, ours need not be exclusively related to spiritual matters, meaning it's not that we can't do anything but speak about these things with our friends, but our faith should penetrate every dimension of our life. I can enjoy bike riding with a non-Christian, but when I go and enjoy bike riding with a Christian, something should be just a little bit different, don't you think? 
And there are certain things that a spiritual friend can only do with me if they know Christ. And ultimately, there's a kind of friendship that I will only ever know with you if you know Christ. And so my highest goal for each and every one of you, no matter what, is that you would know Christ. Christian friendship should point us to Christ. It should grow our knowledge of Christ. It should grow our love for Christ. It should grow our obedience to Christ. True friendship is one of God's means to reform and renew us. Therefore, thirdly, Christian friendship should produce lasting fruit. And I'm gathering this from verse 16, where he says, I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Two thoughts under here. First, Christian friendship should produce fruit. And in this case, I think he mainly is referring to conversion. If our friendships bear the marks that we mentioned, then they will display and they will advance the gospel in our community just by their existence. Colossians 1, 5 through 8 reads, The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. How did it get there? just as you learned it. Did an angel show up? From Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Yes, it's true. Sometimes God likes to send angels. It's true. But far more often, did you notice in the New Testament, God likes to send people? The angel tells Cornelius, you need to go find Peter. <laughs> Philip is, is, is sent to speak to the Ethiopian eunuch. Time and again, it's a person. And here, it's Epaphras. Epaphras showed up, and he made a spiritual friendship. And that bore fruit, and it was the fruit of the gospel. It was Epaphras' ministry, his friendship among this church that allowed the gospel to take root and ultimately to bear fruit. The goal of Christian friendship within the church is to grow our delight in Christ, and its goal outside the church is to communicate the gospel. One of the best ways to introduce someone to the gospel is by showing them the love of God that has so radically transformed your life and your heart. Christian friendships should, however imperfectly, reflect the glory and the goodness of the cross and gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, when the world looks on a Christian friendship, they should see the glory of God reflected in its character. So friends, aim to build friendships with believers and non-believers so as to share the love of Christ because only the love of Christ will endure to the end of all things and beyond. So if Christian friendship should produce fruit, the last thing that we need to mention on that is Christian friendship should produce lasting fruit. Christian friendships should endure. They should help us to abide in Christ. They should help us to endure faithfully in a dark and a sinful world. It should be characterized by what 1 Corinthians says in 13, 7 through 8. Paul says, love bears all things, believes all things hopes all things, endures all things. Love 
never ends. This means that those relationships that we want to endure must be spiritual. Marriage as we know it will not exist in the next kingdom. Jesus tells us so. But we know what will. Christian friendship. Our friendship with God will only increase, and our love for one another. Now, this is not to say we should neglect our marriages in favor of friendships. Rather, what I mean is Christians, and I mean husbands and wives especially, ought to seek they, to make their marriages and all their friendships spiritual friendships. Because ultimately what will endure to the next kingdom and beyond this present evil age is a spiritual Christian friendship. The best example that I could find of this is when Jonathan Edwards, who many of you know is a famous preacher and a theologian during the first great awakening in America, as he lay dying, he wrote to his daughter concerning his beloved wife, Sarah Edwards. And he said, Dear Lucy, it seems to me to be the will of God And I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And I hope she will be supported under so great a trial. Submit cheerfully to the will of God. As to my children, you are now to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you all to seek a father who shall never fail you. Christian friendship is the love of God breaking into our daily affairs. It is, by consequence, I believe, one of his most precious and powerful means of preserving us on the highway to his eternal kingdom. I can remember day after day, like, seminary was really hard for me. I think seminaries are designed to be the best place for you, and somehow, for some of us, it ends up being one of the hardest places. And I remember that God sent me one person while I was there, and we just happened to meet in the gym one day, and we started praying because we were both in a bad spot, and it became a weekly thing. And in fact, we got together and we started running together simply so that we could pray together. And then we'd stay after we ran together while praying together to pray some more. And I tell you, that friendship became of a spiritual nature. He was able to show me my faults and to call me to repentance. He was able to encourage my heart when I felt like there was no more strength left in me. God appoints wonderful, sweet, spiritual friendships as his means to break into our life and to cause us to endure to that next great kingdom. Friends, we were made for communion. We were made for communion with God. We were made communion to, for communion with each other.
Amen? Let us pray. Almighty God, the God of endurance and encouragement, grant us to live in such harmony with one another and in accordance with Christ Jesus that together we may with one voice glorify you, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and our God. Therefore, may it, make it be that we would welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us and all for your eternal glory. Cause our friendships, O oh God, to make much of you and to uphold us in your love until that day when you return to bring us into your eternal kingdom. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Please stand with us. Stand for